everybody. This is Anja Steinbauer from Floss Final Magazine, bringing you tonight's Floss Final Radio. Our topic this evening is medical ethics. What exactly, what exactly is meant by this, we'll explore in a minute, but let me tell, me tell you that this is a topic right after my own heart. Medical ethics is an area of philosophy that requires philosophers to do what I think philosophers ought to do, especially in our time. Get their hands dirty, get out of the, of the cozy ivory tower environment of academia and engage with the issues of the real world. Joining me are three experts in the field, Dr. Piers Ben, a moral philosopher from University College London, Dr. Carvin Hooper, a medical doctor as well as a philosopher from St. George's Univer University of London, and Dr. Esselyn Kingmar, research fellow in philosophy of medicine at King's College London. Welcome to all of you. Right. Can we um, first have a clarification of labels here? Our listeners will want, will want to know what we are actually talking about. We said it's medical ethics, but there's also this buzzword of bioethics that's somehow floating around the philosophical world. So could you give me a clarification? Um, who wants to start? Karen, do you want to say what, what medical ethics is as opposed to bioethics, or are they the same thing? Um, you can construe them as the same thing in some ways. So one way of um, conceptualizing the matter is to think of moral philosophy as coming in three phases. So we have something called meta-ethics, something called normative ethics, and something called applied ethics. And medical ethics essentially is one of the sub-branches of applied ethics. And the idea, I suppose, is to take um, ethical moral principles and the theories and apply them to real-world issues. And obviously medical ethics is the application of philosophical ideas to medicine specifically or healthcare more broadly construed. Right, so these different levels of, of ethics, so, so the, the top one, the meta-ethical level, that's the most theoretical level, so is that right? And um, also on the normative level, you wouldn't necessarily think about specific problems, but that's what you do in applied ethics? That's one way of looking at it, and applied ethics is very much... Uh, in the ground, if you like, as, as you put it uh, earlier on, is away from the ivory tower. So you're dealing with day-to-day -day, day -day issues, whether it's in business eth ethics or medical ethics um, or environmental ethics. And you asked about the distinction between bioethics and medical ethics. Well, bioethics, in a sense, is a broader term. It, it includes um, research ethics. It includes environmental ethics, whereas medical ethics is a subdivision of that of a sort of applied approach that's very much specifically to do with medical issues. Right. Okay. So, um, as Ian, you, you're, you're uh, working within philosophy of medicine. That's, again, different. Can you tell me what that is, please? Uh, yes. So, one way to think of philosophy of medicine is the stuff about medicine that is not medical ethics or bioethics. So, over the past 50 years or so, the vast majority of attention um, when it came to philosophical questions about medicine have been about normative or ethical questions in medicine yes. um, and maybe that has obscured some other philosophical questions you could ask about medicine so recently some people have really tried to say well look at some of these other questions so for example you might ask what with an evidence-based medicine um, it means to think that something is evidence. That is a question yes. that philosophers of science have thought about a lot and is a question that you can and should ask within medicine and Good. Philosophers of medicine also tend to think about certain concepts that often get used in the context of medical ethical questions, but that aren't really thought much further about. So many questions in medical ethics use uh, the distinction between health and disease, for example, yes. in the context of resource allocation or in the context of talking about treatment versus enhancement. But there's often little question about what health and disease 
is or the distinction between the two or what death is or whether life is desirable and those are the kind of questions that philosophers of medicine ask Right, okay, thanks very much, that sounds very exciting Well, um, we'll we'll come back to some of these things that you've you've mentioned Um, Now, let's think more about medical ethics Well, tell us a little about working within medical ethics, Pierre I mean, Pierre, what does the medical ethicist do? do? What, What do you do as a medical ethicist? It's a good question What I think I do is try to get people to reason about ethical issues in a clinical setting both about the ordinary everyday clinical setting such as should doctors tell the truth um, should they disclose everything about a patient's prognosis Um, I mean um, should they deceive uh, to what extent is confidentiality an absolute principle there are those sort of questions in the clinical setting there are also um, as Elsalin said the more general bioethical questions Uh, that don't necessarily impinge upon the everyday doctor-patient relationship, but which are nevertheless important, such as, you know, what makes a human life valuable? Um, Is it ever justifiable to kill? And most, um, but most obviously, I mean, to make it uh, more everyday, um, questions to do with end-of-life decisions. We're not talking about euthanasia and assisted dying. I mean, euthanasia and assisted dying are the two things that that get into the headlines. But there are everyday decisions that don't involve those things, such uh, to do with, should you prolong a life... Uh, should you uh, allow somebody to live um, should you prolong a life as much as you you possibly can or should you say there's a certain point when nature takes its course should you intervene Um, should we you know think that uh, nature should be allowed to take its course in allowing a life to end these are the everyday questions that I think people get involved in and so they're both um, as Carwin said there are meta-ethical questions but there are also general questions about clinical ethics that um, strike us every day Yes, okay. Well, uh, Kevin, I mean, you're a medical doctor as well as a philosopher. Why do we need philosophers to to deal with these medical ethics questions? I imagine that many would say that uh, those who are directly involved uh, are in a much better position to assess these issues. Some of the questions that that Piers mentioned, for instance, you know, so healthcare professionals, um, patients, perhaps even the government, you know, they're, of course, involved as far as funding and legislation is concerned. What can the philosopher add? Well, I think that's... (coughs) A critical and interesting question, and I often come across um, medical students and healthcare professionals who ask the very same question: Why do we need philosophers to be involved in the decision making that yes. we're engaged in? Um, I think there are lots of reasons why philosophy is important in this context, and the first thing is probably to recognise where ethical dilemmas actually exist because actually perceiving that there is an actual ethical dilemma is something that you need a little bit of training one might argue um, in order to um, see properly Um, once you've sort of been able to bring out the fact that there are ethical dilemmas the other role of the philosopher probably the more important role of the philosopher is to analyse the issues in a way that um, doctors and healthcare professionals could do on their own, but who are not essentially trained to do that. Now, obviously, um, most healthcare professionals have their own ideas and beliefs and values and are able to analyse ethical issues just like everybody else. But a philosopher, particularly a moral philosopher, has spent a long time engaging with these issues at a complex uh, level as well as at a practical level. That said, I, I would, on the other hand, say that it's quite important for philosophers to have a grasp of the actual clinical context um, when they're trying to devise policies when they're trying to engage with the issues and that's often the reverse difficulty and so it is quite nice to be in my position where I've studied the two subjects and I'm able to synthesise the two and understand where the two groups are coming from 
Yes, uh, the two or even three groups, of course, we think of the legal side as well and perhaps even more, you know, the political side, so some, so well, some policy uh, issues. So do you think there's generally enough uh, enough communication between all these, these uh, different groups and these different approaches and, you know, are they being properly coordinated or is this something you're trying to do? I think there's a complete lack of uh, coordination <laughs> and part of the reason is that as in uh, all um, sort of ac academic life, people often exist in academic silos. So even within a philosophy department, you will have the people dealing with philosophy of mind, not really talking to the people dealing with moral philosophy and so on. And in yes. medicine, it's much the same. Yes. So trying to get uh, these two subjects together is very, very difficult. Um, and I, what, yes, just, yeah, jump in. Well, just because we were previously talking about uh, medical ethics and bioethics, and one thing that has happened, particularly in the United States, and I don't know how strong it is here, was that in the move from medical ethics, which is very narrowly concerned with sort of the clinical encounter and a doctor-patient relationship, yes. the move from medical ethics to bioethics, there was both a focus on broader issues and the realization that bioethics could only happen if multiple disciplines came together. So um, of involving philosophers, but maybe also some historians, clinicians, maybe communication specialists, and they set it up truly as an interdisciplinary um, approach that can okay, only yeah. happen if these people talk to each other because they bring different perspectives and are in different situations. Um, yes, yes, can, I, yes. can I endorse that? I think that there's also a role even for theology in this whole question. I mean, there is Catholic bioethics, there's feminist bioethics, there are all kind of perspectives on these issues. And many of them come down to very basic philosophical questions about what makes a human life valuable, when is it justified to end a human life or not prolong it, um, what role should patient choice have in uh, yes. clinical decision-making. I mean, all these are philosophical questions that can be discussed in a rigorous uh, way, and what I do as a medical ethicist, it, it encourages people to talk about these issues in a rational and reasoned manner. I, I hope you don't encourage them to think that feminist bioethics is a religion. Uh, no, well, you could, you could get that wrong. I mean, it sometimes seems as if it is, but I, it, it may not be, but... Uh, uh, but I mean, uh, there's also there's a question of there are dogmatic positions about all sorts of questions that do impinge on medical ethics, uh, like the Catholic, like the feminist, like and you know all sorts of positions. And I think that one one discipline we need to uh, to, to develop in ourselves is uh, an ability to avoid dogma and just follow the argument where it leads and concern ourselves with the truth of the matter. Yeah, Kevin. <coughs> Sorry, Kevin. I just want to uh, add another point, really which is that um, there's a question about how much doctors need to know about philosophy and how much philosophers need to know about medicine yes. broadly construed. And it is quite a difficult question to answer. And, you know, I, I do overhear sometimes um, doctors and nurses and so on talking about philosophy and, and sort of or, or at least ethics and saying it's something that they can do in their spare time almost. Yes. And if you imagine um, a philosopher saying, well, I do medicine in my spare time, you can sort of understand that <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> perhaps not, that's not the best approach. Yes. But of course, Healthcare professionals are busy people, and, and philosophers are busy people in a different in a different um, way. And the question of how, how much do you need to know about each other's subjects um, bef um, before you can actually engage in a serious discussion is quite a difficult one. Yes. Um, do you have to know about sort of Kantian theory in, in an in-depth way in order to be able to talk about <laughs> euthanasia? Um, yes. Or do you need to know about the practicalities of how suicide and assisted suicide and euthanasia actually work in order to be able to discuss? Um, 
the ethical issues. Yes, it's this question of, of actually, you know, making moral decisions and, and dealing with ethics in a practical manner rather than theorizing about it. And you can imagine a, a doctor saying, look, you know, I work in a neonatal ward. I make life and death decisions every day. I don't need to know about Kant. So mm. that, that would be <laughs> perfectly <laughs> understandable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's also a third dimension that I think of very often gets dropped out in these discussions, which is that so it's important to do the moral theorizing and it's important to, to deal with the, the, the the practical context and possibilities within medicine. But the third aspect that's very easily forgotten is that there are also a huge communication aspect involved in doing bioethics. So very often you'll be, uh, you come across a case where there's maybe an end-of-life decision where you're not just dealing with, let's say, a case that presents a particular problem about the end of life, but you're also dealing with a person and particularly a person in a family that has been a family for, you know, 20, 30, 50, 80 years, and that has particular ways of dealing with each other, particular ways of communication, particular problems that may need to be resolved or that come up that are highly particular to the context of that family. And part of dealing with such a situation appropriately is to help in the... um, um, in the moral questions and help in the practical questions, but is also to deal very sensitively with the particular people involved. Um, and that is something that very often gets forgotten. It can get yes. forgotten by the busy doctors. It can also be forgotten by philosophers who just get lost thinking about Kant. And <laughs> I, if, if I could make any call, I would say get more people who are just good at mediating as part of the bioethical team if there ever was a bioethical yes. team. I, th- I think that's hugely important to, to, to actually you know, keep the dialogue going, it appears. Yes, it's certainly true that in the teaching of medical ethics uh, for the last 10 or 15 years maybe, there's been a great emphasis on communication skills, um, how to address your patients, how to be culturally sensitive uh, to, for example, patients who don't want to be examined by a male doctor, this sort of thing. There's yes. a huge emphasis. But I, I do worry that this... Um, sort of treads too much into the area of public relations, if you like, and and not enough into the area of sort of real clinical sensitivity. I mean, it's all very well saying that doctors should be polite to their patients and to be aware that certain religious beliefs and certain cultural beliefs will make a difference to the decisions they might want to make. At the same time, you've got to get it right clinically, and I think that there's a there's a problem, a possible problem there. Yes, hopefully there's not always a tension between this, but... but hopefully uh, not, but it can be. Yes, okay. And it's one other point I'd like to raise, which is uh, in terms of the differences between the two subjects. Um, philosophy can be and often is um, quite an abstract subject, and when you listen yes. to philosophical debates, it, it happens at a very abstract level and it's very rarely case orientated. Whereas in medicine, medicine's often learnt through cases and around cases and by analogizing from cases. Yes. And medical ethics often actually is case orientated and case based. Yes. That's partly just because philosophers who work in this field have to sort of appeal to the, the model that medical students and doctors are familiar with, which is the case model, and it's partly because that's what makes it most relevant to, to them. Yes. But that difference is one that you know, can create some dissonance um, as well if you're moving from one field to the next. Uh, doctors often thinking that philosophy is too abstract, yes. and philosophers are often thinking that medicine is too case-orientated. Yes, that makes good sense. I mean, on the other hand, I mean, all good philosophy is, is descriptive rather than mm. prescriptive, so, so ultimately it's, it's about giving a good description of the world 
therefore you need to look at the world. So ultimately, to, to stay at this uh, grassroots level, I think, is, is important and uh, useful philosophically as well as from a practical and perhaps medical point of view. Right, okay, well, we're, we're, going, we're going to take a little music break and then we're going to come back with, uh, with, with more discussion, perhaps in, in more detail about uh, choice and responsibility and perhaps also very much about health, our own health. Uh, should we be healthy? Uh, do we, are we morally responsible for being healthy? Uh, that's in a minute. For now, uh, we're going to listen to Boom Boom Bob by Metis.
Hello, this is Philosophy Now Radio. I'm Anja Steinbauer and I'm joined in the studio by Piers Ben, Kerbin Hooper and Elsian Kingma. And we're talking about medical ethics. And more specifically, we're going to talk about uh, health. We've come to this point at the show where we should talk more specifically about particular problems. And this problem, the problem that we all have to face is the problem of um, a healthy lifestyle and, uh, and a healthy life. So are we morally responsible for, for leading healthy lives? Um, should we perhaps even be politically responsible in this respect as well? But perhaps, first of all, um, let's try and be clear about what it is we're after. So what is health? I mean, at first glance, it just seems to me that it has to do with sort of proper biological functioning. Um, you know, so, so I suppose there are particular criteria perhaps um, having to do with a healthy heart. So, you know, if, if, if a heart has uh, qualities uh, ABC, then, then it's healthy. If my heart has these qualities, it's a healthy heart. And so for the rest of the body, um, that sort of basically makes sense to me. But um, the, the World Health Organization defines health as something more complex, namely as a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Quite an old definition, actually, 1948 and uh, unchanged since then. Well, that's, that's quite a tall order. Um, so is it difficult to, uh, to find a good definition of health? Um, is this one pretty standard, pretty established, or is it quite contested? Uh, Well, I would say it is actually extremely difficult to come up with a good definition of health. So if you take the WHO definition, which is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, people have said that is not a definition of health. That is a definition of an orgasm in the context of a very wonderful, mutually satisfying relationship. <laughs> um, so that doesn't seem to be a very good definition of health. We can be healthy, but not at that moment in a state of perfect social um, mental or even physical well-being. The other kind of health definitions that you alluded to appeal to what it means to function perfectly as yes. a human. But that, again, is more problematic than it might seem at first. So there's two ways of thinking about this. One is to think that we should function as we have been designed by evolution. But if you think about it, evolution never designed us to spend our days on a chair behind computers, hunched, eating lots of chocolate and drinking coffee. So an account of health that appeals to how we are designed to function evolutionary doesn't really have much bearing on our normal daily lives, yes. on, our, on our present lives and design environments. The other kind of account of health appeals to how we function in comparison to others. That leads to problems because we are increasingly finding that maybe huge parts of the population are healthy. So over half of people might, in some age groups, have high blood pressure. Yes. So how can health be statistically normal if in those groups more than half of the population is ill? So putting that aside, I think for this con um, discussion, what is really important is not to think of health as some kind of utopia that you won't achieve like the WHO does but also not to think about health as the mere absence of disease. If we want to talk about healthy lifestyles what we want is something about health that talks about a capability yes. or a capacity, a certain an ability for example to live through particular kind of stressors, yes. a capability to become ill and come back from it so a sort of positive right. capacity of a human that we can improve yes. or reduce. And, and is there, I mean what 
would that be an objective measure of, of that or is, is health also you know a subjective uh, matter that you know we can say well you know I, I know my doctor says basically everything's okay but you know I don't feel healthy I feel terrible um, does does that have an impact at all or does it, does that not matter that again is an area that is very hotly debated so on the one hand people reject completely subjective measures of health and disease because in the extreme case you could have the hypochondriac who feels that they're yes, ill yes. but there doesn't seem to be objectively anything wrong with them so most people reject extreme subjectivism yes. but it also seems that some kind of extreme objectivism is yes. also wrong it seems we can't get at a judgment with health but with health and diseases without making some like, judgments about what we value i, I can see now why you say it's difficult <laughs> yes, well, what yes do you think? I, I agree with that i think that the um world health organization definition of health is very problematic it seems to set a standard that nobody could almost in principle achieve i think we need to distinguish the concept of well-being from the concept of health well-being includes many things besides what we regard as physical health uh, psychological well-being um, even being a good person if you're going to be um, you're going to follow aristotle about this yes uh, that will be you know the the, the flourishing life would be the life would be the moral life as well as the physically healthy life and yes. the intellectually flourishing life so there seems to be a sort of prejudice that's, that's got its foot in the door in modern thinking that um, there's something particularly important about physical health i think we ought to regard physical health as something to be achieved to a good enough standard but not to an excellent standard um, yes. The WHO suggests the excellent standard. Um, I think we should just be good enough, just as parents should be good enough parents and not fantastic parents or excellent parents. Um, the question we, we is, often, what is enough? <laughs> yes, I mean, be, be good enough. And also accept that physical health is very important because it's a precondition for all sorts of other flourishings. I mean, if you're dead, you can't do anything very much. Yes. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite good to avoid death. To the extent you can, I think but there agree are still on that other one? things. There are other things right. that are important in that's, well-being. That's yes, I think that's true, and I think you're you're right, uh, pointing us to, towards the sort of ancient philosophers. I mean, the the, the Greek philosophers, but also the ancient uh, Chinese philosophers. In fact, they they were very clear about this fact that uh, you know physical well-being, mental well-being, it's a package deal. You know how how you live, what what you do, and also whether you're physically healthy. Um, and yeah. somehow it it all contributes to this one yes. thing: a personhood and someone's life. So, so they're <laughs> yes. all important, but they aren't the only important thing. Absolutely, quite, quite right. Okay, so we've got some sort of idea what, what, what uh, the difficulties are with respect to defining health. <coughs> but, um, well, let's, let's talk about being healthy. Well, we all know that there are a number of things we can do to be healthier. Stop smoking, drink less alcohol, exercise, eat healthy foods. But are we morally required to do those things? So I also want to talk about whether others can uh, make us choose the healthy, th the, the healthy option, whether they can um, either, you know, just, just perhaps um, guide us towards this or even bully us or perhaps push us uh, in, in a more serious way towards a healthier life. But before we talk about this, do I owe it to myself to be healthy? It's purely from a moral point of view, am I what in philosophy we would call a moral client? But am I a moral client to myself? Well, I think the first thing to do is actually to get across how significant a role human beings play in their own ill health. So you've mentioned a few of the sort of classic examples of smoking and drinking yes. and exercising and so on. But in some ways, it's much, much, much broader than that. So the decision whether to cross a street, the decision whether to cycle, yes. the decision to use a sharp knife when you're, when you're cutting bread, the decision to have unprotected sexual intercourse, the decision to sunbathe, and so on and so forth. There are so many things that we do in our lives uh, which increase and decrease our probability of getting uh, 
um, a disease of becoming ill. Yes. Um, so then, leaving that aside, there's a, then there's the question which um, you're raising about whether or not we have an obligation to remain healthy. Um, one question is an obligation to whom, precisely, do yes. we have to remain healthy? Do we have an obligation to ourselves? Um, there is sort of tradition in moral philosophy where you might argue that one does have duties to oneself in that way. Um, on the other hand, the more sort of modern um, environment or a modern way of seeing things, the concept of duties to self are very much seen to be less important. And certainly from a political point of view, although we may have responsibilities for ourselves in a moral sense, it's not clear how the state can intervene in any way yes. to definitely we'll have to come to that to, to sort of require us in a sense to be moral to ourselves as long as we're not harming yes. anybody else yes. in the first instance okay what 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 do you guys think well I, I mean i'm inclined to believe that there is some measure of duty to ourselves we do have some measure of obligation to look after our own health particularly if for example we are looking after other people if we're parents i mean it does it does seem very yes. plausible that there's, an, that there's a a very good reason to stay healthy, not excellently healthy, but um, adequately healthy, if you're looking after a small, vulnerable child. But um, then it's not just, just an obligation to oneself, but actually to the child. That's to the child, but yeah. it's an obligation to oneself which relates to one's obligation Indeed. to the child, I think. Um, I mean, uh, my own view about public health propaganda and so on tends to be libertarian when it comes to um, public health propaganda and government yeah. initiatives, well, but actually quite moralistic when it comes to, well, re- ad- moderately moralistic, let's say, when it comes to looking after your own health. Yes, I mean, to throw a life away because you smoke uh, or you drink too much or you um, eat all the wrong food seems an awful waste, and I think there is yes. a moral dimension to this. But as to the question of to, what, to the extent to which the state should intervene, whether people should be uh, penalised yes. in well, health care... We'll, we'll come to uh, that. We'll come to that indeed. I mean, that's another question. Uh, um, absolutely. Can I just make... Because I think there's two, two things that are quite important to remember, though, because it's really easy to fall back in talking about a sort of fairly extreme examples about smoking or uh, exercising or eating healthily and talk about them in a very disconnected way, which makes it seem very easy uh, to take care of yourself in that way. But the example of being a parent is quite a nice one, that we might have an obligation to be healthy to ourselves and our children, but most people who are parents will also recognise that out of the thousands of obligations they have and feel, they can barely manage to fulfil three in every (laughs) single day. So any of these discussions are discussions about people that are trying to meet many, many, many different demands in their lives. And they are not smoking in a lifetime and considering that as a general choice. They are at any point in their day trying to do various things. And one of those happens to be lighting a cigarette or one of those happens to be finding some food in the middle of other things. And that might be the closest food available, which is not good. So it's important to consider real people and real choices here. And the other thing is that it's not always so easy easy to know how to be healthy so the example of tanning is a really nice one for a long time the sun was really bad and now suddenly we've decided we're all vitamin d deficient and actually the sun is quite good it's quite hard to steer a course between these different because very often to be healthy or to live healthier are small incremental changes that have their effect on a population level. But it's not so clear whether you're the individual that should just get out to get a bit more sun, whether it's for you more important to spend that time getting a bit more exercise or spending that time making a salad rather than buying a salad. So yes. 
but, in but, but sometimes life, we know that we're making choices that are that are that are simply the yeah. wrong choices. I mean, sometimes we know, you know, if you look, there's the apple. You know, I, I, sh- I know I shouldn't go for the cake, but I will go for the cake, and you know it's wrong. So, so some, sometimes uh, it is obvious. Well, but sure, there in, are in, in some the easy cases. Life. But when we start talking about responsibility, we should focus on the general measure on the cases, not the few easy ones. I okay. think. Uh, I mean, to f- follow up on this issue. Um, I think most people would understand that, you know, picking up the apple rather than picking up the chocolate bar um, is the right healthy option. But if you look at people's understanding of risk, understanding of the relationship between behaviour and ill health, it's actually staggeringly poor. Mm. So just right. to take smoking Green, as yes. one, one example. Yes. So yeah. even I think most yeah. smokers and most non-smokers understand that smoking is dangerous. Yes. But if you ask smokers, well, can you explain the danger to me? That is to say, can you explain to me what's going to follow if you smoke regularly for 30 years? Yes. Well, you know, a significant number of them from the research that's done can say, oh, well, I think lung cancer yes. and maybe something to do with heart disease. But can they list any further conditions? No. Do they have a full mm. understanding of what those conditions are like? Yes. No. Do they understand the risks particularly? Again, no. And now you might say, well, yeah. whose responsibility is it to yes. know about that information? Is it theirs or is it, some, is it the government's and providing that information? But the reality is that people are fairly ignorant of, yes. of risks in any sort well, of proper sense. Yes, but, but I mean, even the consequences of, of, of cancer and heart disease, I mean, that, that seems pretty bad. That seems <laughs> really enough to put anyone off smoking. So um, I, I wonder in what to, to what degree you need to have a more detailed knowledge of the consequences. Well, I, I agree with Carwin that um, most people's understanding, I suspect, of risk is very bad. My understanding of risk is bad. There are all kinds of uh, mathematical theorems about risk that we need to know if we would make adequate assessments. I mean, one thing that's slightly gets me, actually, with things like smoking and public health, is that we, you see this poster in hospitals that says, let's face it, we all smoke. And if you live with a smoker but don't smoke yourself, you have a 25% increased risk of getting all sorts of diseases. This is meant to alarm you. But, of course, the question to ask is 25% of what? Yes. Um, if the actual base rate is actually 1 in 1,000, uh, you, you're talking about 1.25 in 1,000. So I, I do get annoyed when public health information misleads us. But at the same time, I don't want to be complacent. I don't want to deny that smoking's a bad idea. Um, passive smoking is an overrated risk, I think, but active smoking is a bad idea, and people should know about it, but at the same time they shouldn't be hit on the head with it. Yes, OK, and, and this, is, this is something I think we, we, should, uh, we should discuss more. Um, other people penalising us for, for, for failing to do uh, the right thing, to what degree is that justified? Um, can the government be, be paternalistic? Um, we'll, we'll talk about this some, some, some more after we've had some more music. And uh, the next track is Il Ultima Habitante del, del Planeta by um, Mastretta. Con 
To Philosophy Now Radio. I'm Anja Steinbauer. I'm joined by Piers Ben, Carbon Hooper, and Elsilian Kingmar. And uh, we're talking about medical ethics. We're talking about being healthy and uh, doing good. So, um, of course, you, you all realize, dear listeners, we're sitting here in the studio drinking wine, smoking cigarettes, and uh, eating hamburgers. So, we're having a rather good time. Anyway, but uh, so, so the question really <coughs> that we want to discuss next. It's not just whether we owe it to ourselves and whether it's, it's the moral thing to, to be healthy and to try and live as healthy a lifestyle as is possible, um, but also to what degree is it okay for others to, uh, to try and lead us towards a better life, towards a healthier life? Um, can we get bullied or even taxed into being healthy? Uh, as Carwin pointed out to me, parallel taxes on tobacco and alcohol. In the autumn of last year, Denmark introduced what is believed to be the world's first fat tax, a surcharge on foods that are high in saturated fat, so butter, milk, cheese, pizza, meat, oil and processed food are now all a little bit more expensive um, if they contain more than 2.3% uh, saturated fat. So is that, is that a good thing to do? Carwin, what do you think? Uh, well, it's a complicated matter. I, th I think the first thing to bear in mind uh, for anybody who's trying to devise healthcare policy around this area is that people's degree of moral responsibility for their uh, ill health varies systematically and dra drastically. Um, we know, for example, that people's behavioural choices are heavily influenced by their socioeconomic background and so on. Yeah. So if you want to devise a way in which you require people to bear the costs of their um, choices in some ways, you, you need, to, at the very least, to bear that in mind. Now, if, I don't think anybody would really oppose the idea that governments um, could provide people with information about risks, information about healthcare risks. I know yes. Piers was somewhat unhappy with the propaganda element of this. <laughs> yes. But the simple idea of telling people that smoking is risky, that drinking alcohol is risky, and so on, as long as it's done in a reasonable fashion, seems perfectly reasonable. Likewise, I think people are quite comfortable with the idea of healthcare professionals advising patients um, about their risks as long as they don't sort of nag them every time they see them, if you like. Mm. Um, the d more difficult question is whether you should go beyond that sort of information giving and actually require people to bear costs 
as in some ways the Danish government um, has now done. And one option, one way of doing it is, is as the Danish have done and as we have been doing um, for centuries with yes. smoking um, and now with alcohol as well, which is to put a tax or to tax something which is risky, a behaviour which is risky or a commodity which is risky. Yes. One of the advantages of that is that, is that nobody essentially is denied healthcare in any way. People pay the cost up front and before they develop a disease. Um, which is a, a key advantage. Um, another um, advantage of that is that, to an extent, anyway, you, you can tailor um, the cost fairly uh, or reasonably effectively to the actual o- overall cost, so you right. can work out what the tax rate should be on the basis of what you think the overall so, so cost in, should be. So in a way, be. it's an efficient thing to do. It's a practical thing to do. It's, it's an efficient way of doing it. It avoids the difficulty of denying access to, to treatment to anybody, so yeah. you're not forcing people to mm. cost-bear yeah. in that yeah. way. It yeah. has many advantages in that respect. One difficulty with it is an issue of equity, across different risks. And so, for example, it's very straightforward to tax something like um, tobacco. But yes. how do you tax uh, something like unprotected sexual intercourse? How do you tax something like... <laughs> That's a difficult one. Yeah, a difficult one. If you can I figure that one out, well, absolutely. What is protection, anyway? But, yes. yeah. but could I just say on, on yeah. uh, this question? I mean, I think that I, I agree that uh, there's nothing wrong with public health information and so on. But um, there is something wrong with a bullying or even nudging approach to public health that uh, makes people feel guilty because they drink a bit too much or or they smoke. But I do think there's one argument uh, for the opposing point of view that is worth considering, which is that in... um, uh, when there's a, a budget, a limited budget, um, there are scarce resources, it might be reasonable to uh, prioritise people who have not brought about their own health conditions. Um, because they are, because if people who have brought about their health conditions know they would not be given priority in treatment, that's a deterrent to um, yes. against um, you know drinking too much or smoking too much. I think the argument doesn't work, but I think it's something worth considering because there is a justice argument that one could mount for saying that there should be some transparent policy to treat people who have not brought about their own health conditions upon themselves. Um, and I'd just be quite interested in, in knowing what people think about that. But is it always quite clear what's, what's brought about a particular condition? You, can you always be quite clear about the causality? No, you can't. I mean, there are, obviously there are, there are genetic factors, um, but there are also behavioural factors. I mean, the two things come in, in, you know, they combine. So one could say, yes. OK, I mean, most people who get lung cancer, let's face the facts, it's because they've been smokers. I mean, lung cancer is actually a very rare disease if you haven't but, smoked. But if I mm-hmm. we just come in there, because I don't think... I actually think smoking is a really bad example to discuss in this case for two reasons. It's sort of the clearest example we have, in fact, maybe the only really clear example we have of a particular behaviour that is really particularly related to a particular condition. Yeah. We also know about smoking that by now most smokers have sp- spend far more in tax contributions over their lifetime than they will ever be spent on medical costs on their behalf. Smokers subsidise the health costs of us healthy people, so-called healthy people. So there's there's a problem of proportionality? They should be paying less? There is certainly a problem of proportionality there. There is a problem that it doesn't seem to have worked very well as a deterrent, right? The tax on cigarettes has been ramped up and up and up and up and up, and it doesn't seem to have done very much. And there seem to be very few other conditions where we can make such a clear causal link. I want to say something else as well. So we just had uh, Piers mentioned the bullying or nudging approach. Yes. Um, I'm quite against bullying, and I think making people feel guilty isn't very useful either. But one might nudge in other ways. And for people who don't really, uh, haven't really heard of this nudging stuff yet, um, the idea of nudging (laughs) is that you just 
affect people's behaviour in a really unproblematic, maybe unnoticed way. It's supermarkets. Well, it's a bit. It's a bit like the following. Imagine you walk into a building, and the stairs are right in front of you, and the lift is just around the corner, as opposed to what often happens now, where the lift is right in front of you, and if you wanted to take the stairs, you would sort of have to ask where they are because they're completely concealed. In a scenario where the stairs are really obvious, if if it's one floor up, I will take the stairs and maybe many people with me. So it's small changes like that. And what I find quite interesting is what we often don't realise is that we're already being bullied by advertising into really unhealthy behaviour. That's a very good point. There's all swathes of society that have a stake in making us buy fatty food, in making us smoke, in making us buy beauty products, in making us buy diet pills, in making us do all sorts of stuff and are using really quite powerful yeah, visual imagery mm. to true. make our behavior in this way so there's but no real reason why we couldn't try and change yeah, these behaviors I but, but i also wonder i mean because because since you talk about visual images i mean something that that really i thought was very powerful uh, all these these posters that were around a little while ago about you know concerning smoking you know that were really really not very aesthetically pleasing and showed showed people's faces distorted in terrible ways and 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 so on and they were really meant to show how horrible smoking is why why does something like this have less impact than the sort of positive advertising that tells us look you know why don't you make this unhealthy choice because it's good well because the reason why people smoke and drink too much is that it is pleasurable Quite simply, we, we do it because it's, we enjoy it. It's pleasurable. But, but exercising and eating <laughs> fruit is also pleasurable. Well, all sorts of wicked, vicious things are pleasurable, and that's, that's why we do it. And you can but all sorts <laughs> of good things are pleasurable. Exactly. Well, exactly. Well, I'm not saying they're bad. The question really it's just is... A fact. So, so the funny <laughs> thing is that... right. Advertising that can work in two ways. One is to make things seem really appealing, right? Drink this little, um, you know, drink and you'll be happy and healthy and dancing on the beach like all these other people. Of course you won't be, but we buy into it. When we do the kind of health behaviour, nobody says eat apples and you'll be happy and dancing on the beach with these other people. So maybe it's this positive approach that's needed. Maybe we need to create more image. And I would like to ask Calvin, for instance, the Change for Life campaign in in the UK, do you think that's, that's a good approach? Well, I think it's, it's an approach. I mean, the Change for Life campaign um, is largely about providing people with information and education. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. um, the government spends money on television advertising. Uh, and some of it's actually targeted at children fairly effectively, actually. Um, I think the, the general point that's being made, I think, is a good one and worth being uh, reinforced, which is that we are nudged all of the time um, by advertisers. Yes. I mean, the way that the, the free markets work, I mean, the whole, the whole point is to, ad- is to nudge us into buying things that we don't really want and so on. Yes. And so, sort of counter-nudging, if you like, from yes. the government may actually balance out um, the situation somewhat. So people often are unhappy about the idea of a government nudging us here and nudging us there. But if yes. you imagine that the, 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 the playing field isn't level, it's been twisted, if you like, to towards um, the purchasing of commodities, um, using the government to counter notice back into some, something yes. which is uh, more neutral um, might be a reasonable approach. I mean, one of the problems yes. with it, of course, sure. is the fact that it's, nudging doesn't really appeal to if like our, our rational deliberation. The half, no, the, part of the point is to sort of appeal to our subjective, subconscious yeah. yes. um, uh, psychology, and, all, and that is 
problematic when the government is doing it, at least in many people's eyes. Yes, yes but, but I, th- I think, you know, we're, we're still proper, proper agents, we can, we can make proper choices, so it's not like we're completely subjected to this kind of propaganda. I mean, we can still, we can still sort of put it aside and say, yes, you know, it looks very, very, very good when presented like this in the magazine or on telly, but, but actually in the real world, you know, I'm, I'm going to make different choices. It, that is entirely possible. It's not like we cannot, we cannot help it but have to follow the advertising. I think yes. it's a difficult point. I mean, I know certain libertarians who um, object very strongly to the nudge approach because they see it as manipulative and as bossy and as sort of, you know, in a very covert, rather nasty covert way, telling you we know best. Uh, you can have your cigarettes, but we're not going to show them in the shop. You've got to ask them. You've got to humiliate yourself by asking for these cigarettes and looking a fool in front of the cashier. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I don't know what to think about this. I think, well, you know, I, don't like, I don't like the mentality that goes behind the nudging and everything. At the same time, it's perfectly true. Smoking's a bad thing. It, it's bad for you. Um, you know, if you could flick a button and decide to stop, not to smoke or to smoke, you probably choose not to. So, I, I mean, agnostic about it, but I think it's an issue that's, that's worthy of but being aired. I think the, 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 the playing field issue is really important, because I would like to know what these libertarians thinks, think about the advertising I'm constantly subject to, right? Before so, that. I mean, therefore, I mean, that's very <laughs> yeah. interesting. I mean, I'm bombarded on a daily basis of yes. images of photoshopped women. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. particularly want to see those all the time, yeah. but I can barely go on public transport, open magazine, watch television, or in fact do anything without seeing these images if you think that that is okay i mean i would much rather that somebody uses those images to actually help me have a healthy behavior than that somebody is now just uses these images to make me feel miserable and you know end up buying yes. chocolate cake or makeup yes. or whatever they meant to make you buy yeah. they what do you to make you buy nearly anything what is a photoshop image <laughs> Right, <laughs> it's an image. Sorry, maybe it I'll is an image of a here. very pretty yes. um, person conferring to a particular body type and making that image ah. even prettier and right. even more thin or bulked up or whatever the image that you want to t- achieve. Touched up, so, so perfection rather than natural, uh, natural add appearance. Add one last thing about what um, yes. Appearance was saying, you know, the idea of having a switch in your head that you could just you know, uh, switch off so you don't smoke anymore. I mean, the reality is that the vast majority of smokers want to stop. Yes. Um, and the difficulty is that they, they find it difficult to do that. And so you might say that any... any um, thing that the government can do to encourage oh. that sort of yes. higher order desire to actually give up and allow people to conquer their sort of lower order desire yes. to actually to smoke is not such a bad thing. I mean the, the worry I suppose is that the government might be interfering with well, well, human beings the really If they, if they consented to the nudge that's fine if they consented to it. If the nudge is being imposed upon them without their consent that might be a different matter. Well I mean well, we, we think of, of liberty as very very much um, meaning the right to make the wrong choices right. I mean this, yeah. this, uh, that's, that's very much at the core of the, uh, the idea of liberty. On the other hand you know should the government protect us from ourselves you know do do we need this do we need the government to be paternalistic well to live longer well i think the whole point is to steer away a little bit of from the extremes of paternalism so as you yourself i said very rightly um the oh dear i've just forgotten what i wanted to say that's terrible. <laughs> what did you say earlier on? You made a very good point about... About liberty? No, the previous point you made. About being protected from ourselves. Well, I mean... No, it was something else. There is a sort of argument for the government not protecting us from ourselves that says that if it were to protect us from ourselves, it would be intrusively 
um, protectionist, if you like, it would be it would actually be denying your own autonomy. That the the reality of autonomy is that you really are in a very dangerous world. You just have to make of yourself what you can using your intelligence, your yes. resources, and nobody can stop you making a mistake. And there's lots. But of that's people. the point. That's what mm. you said earlier. You said you, we can ignore the advertising. We yes. can use our brain yes. and question the images that we are presented. So the question here is constantly is not about completely being forced to do something or being completely left out in your choices. Yes. So it's any choice you make is against the background and a lot of your choices will be strongly influenced by the background so as long as you have the ability to step out of it and take that step back I think it's okay for a government to mess with that background yes. just as it's okay but if it is also okay for advertising to mess with mm. the background it'd be mm. really problematic to say advertising or any kind of commercial uh, entity can mess with that background as much as they want but if a government does anything at all <gasps> we should be extremely careful I mean the government yes. has a democratic mandate mm. commercial stuff only responds to who wants to pay yes yeah, that, that's yeah. a good point I mean the question is you know it's, it's again a, a question of measure isn't it how much should the, the government interfere and, and, and Carmen you also um, told me earlier about uh, about the idea that uh, uh, wearing helmets when you're cycling is, is perhaps uh, considered you know as a, as a as a law for the future so do you think that's that's coming and do you think that's a good thing and you know where else are we are we going with this well um, it is coming in some ways I mean, in northern ireland actually a legislation has just passed that will make wearing cycle helmets yes. a, a requirement right. for adults and um, around the mm. parts of the u.s canada and some parts of europe that's already in place uh, one of the difficulties with, with all these things that we, what we don't want to end up with is a society terrified of risk yes. and obsessed with yeah. the idea yeah. of, of remaining healthy and yeah. avoiding yes. um, all risk. And, and, and in some ways, one way to think about that is to think, well, some of our great, great, greatest people um, that have lived, if you like, have taken great risks with themselves, whether they're adventurers or, and so on. And so we, we kind of want right. to encourage that flourishing as well. Thank you. Yes. And so ultimately, you know, we do have to take responsibility for our own lives. Uh, thank you. Thank you all very much for being here. Is there, is there anything in particular that you'd like to, to, to share with our listeners? Know something you'd like to, to recommend? I, I know Pierce has got a new book out. Do you want to say I something about, about that? I talked about last time, the book on commitment, but I wasn't really here to plug that. No, what I want to say about public health is that... Uh, uh, but, 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 but we have to come, uh, come uh, to an okay, end with our discussion. Okay. Exciting though it is. I'll just say something. I just would like encourage readers to look at the Centre for Humanities and Health at King's College London because we have a blog on these issues and we also have a bi-weekly philosophy of medicine seminar that is on there. So if people and are interested, that's in something to have a look at. Medical or should be looked at as well. Great. So just look at the King's yeah. website. Yeah. Come and do you have anything? Uh, no, I'm quite happy. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd like uh, to recommend to everybody to, to, in London to come to Philosophy for All meetings. Uh, the website is pfalondon.org. Uh, and of course, keep reading uh, Philosophy Now. Th thank you for listening. Um, and we have a last song for you um, Spirit in the Sky, very appropriately by Doctor and the Medics.